Welcome to the podcast for a better life. I'm Chris Johnson. If you're interested, both the book and film version of A Better Life are available at theatheistbook.com. On today's episode, I speak with Eric Murphy about moving away from Christianity and finding a new home in his non-belief. Eric Murphy is a podcast host and atheist activist. He is also the host of Talk Heathen from the atheist community of Austin. He has spent the last five years as an activist in Texas after moving there from California in 2015. I asked him about his religious upbringing and environment. I grew up in Southern California in a uh, county, uh, Ventura County. Um, it's a largely agricultural area. And um, even though it's Southern California, there's, there's still a lot of religious influence. Um, I, I kind of had a interesting upbringing. My parents were divorced. And because of that, I kind of had two childhoods. One of them was more secular when I was living with my father. And one was very, very strictly, very heavily born again Christian. Uh, with my mother. And so really a lot of the experience that I have to draw on is from that side of things. But um, I did have the benefit of being able to kind of see other viewpoints because I, I, I had the, the chance to step out and, and, and back in. Um, so I, I count myself lucky for that. Did you consider yourself religious? I mean, looking back, were, were you religious at that point when you were being raised in a religious household with your mom? I definitely considered myself a Christian, a born-again Christian. Um, I accepted Jesus into my heart three times. Um, I don't know why I needed to more than once, but for some that reason- That was my I next question. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I don't know. I guess I didn't feel saved enough. And so just wanted to kind of triple stamp the double stamp mm -hmm, <laughs> and, right, and make right. sure. So, um, yeah, no, I, I was in it enough. The, the interesting thing is, though, is when I look back at it, I was definitely viewed as not a part of them a whole lot earlier than I viewed myself as not a part of them. Hmm. Which is, is that? kind of interesting. Because I asked questions. <laughs> um, so I think it was right around late middle school, moving into high school, youth group. Um, I would ask questions and I genuinely meant them. I genuinely didn't understand a couple things and I genuinely was, was, was wanting to know. And I thought that all of the answers were going to be in the book. Um, mm -hmm. And then the weekend came when... They said, hey, Eric, we're actually going to move you to the, um, the child care and you're, you're going to help. You're going to be with the adults taking care of the children during, the, during services. Um, hmm. And so I just kind of got moved to where I wouldn't be causing other people to question things. Um, but even then, I still considered myself one of them. Um, what's interesting is kind of looking back at it, I think that there are family members and, and people there who would definitely have seen this, you know, and where I was going a whole lot sooner than I did. Were you seen as an outlier? I mean, were your friends all religious as well? Or were you kind of different amongst your peer group or were they all religious? Well, it, again, that kind of breaks down to where I went. So when I was with my dad and, and my, and my adoptive mom, um, it was an entirely different experience. It was, it wasn't, you know, purely secular. It was still, but it was toned down. You know, they, they didn't mind if I had non-Christian friends. And so it wasn't as forward in my life. But when I was with my mom, it was very, very different. It was heavy. I, there was no associating with anyone outside of the church. I mean, outside of that, that belief group and they kept you busy, you know, um, throughout the week you were doing Bible study, you were doing youth group stuff, you were doing, um, 
you know, ministry is based on your gender. So, um, you'd get together with a whole bunch of other boys and feel bad about masturbating, you know, and, and have accountability <laughs> partners and, um, accountability it, partners. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing now. Um, so, an accountability partner is uh, someone who you check in with. It kind of like um, Alcoholics Anonymous when you when you have a sponsor, and they okay. just kind of check in with you to go. You know, are you doing okay? Have you been thinking dirty thoughts? Have you been doing things or or basically? you policed each other for thought crimes. Yeah. Now that I think about it, that's kind of bad, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Now, did this cause tension between in the relationship between you and your father, given that your father was not particularly religious? How did you as a religious teenager then see your father who wasn't religious? I kind of became a bit of a chameleon. I, I think one of the other things that benefited me was, um, I'm half white, half Mexican. And being in a living in a community which that is largely predominantly Latino, um, I kind of learned to blend into where I was. And so um, when I was at church, I kind of took on that. And when I was at my dad's, um, I just had other things. I, I kind of took on another mindset. So when you're when you're heavy, heavy into the church, um, th- there's a lot of weird things that you think, you know, that, that, that keep your brain busy things like, you know, like I said, th- thought crimes. Um, but as a kid with my dad, I, I just wanted to be a kid, you know, I, we, mm-hmm. I, we lived not far from a riverbed. I wanted to go with my friends and go play in the riverbed, you know, um, I wanted to ride my rollerblades, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So uh, moving into my teens, um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think beginning of high school, I started to become really angsty, you know, <laughs> very, mm-hmm. very moody. And, um, I moved, I, I went from listening to, uh, well, it, it just, everything got darker, um, for a while. And then I wound up kind of expanding from there as I started to let go of more of the things that I was kind of feeling guilty or shameful about. Um, so, but moving back to how I felt about my dad, um, you know, his lack of religious conviction, it didn't, I don't really remember it being a huge problem for me. There, there were other things. He wasn't a great guy. Um, there were other things that I thought about when it came to him. Did you have non-religious friends during that period as well? Did you see their non-religiosity in a negative way or what was that like? Yes, I do remember. Oh my gosh. If any, So there was a kid named Brian down the street whose family um, was non-religious. And, and I remember... Um, I remember just passing judgment on them. I mean, I would still play with Brian, but there were, I don't know. The, the thing that you're taught is that you're in the world. You're not of the world. You, you, you kind of make do, but you just hold yourself apart. So for those that aren't religious, can you just explain what that means? Oh, in the world, not of the world. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. That's a lot of lingo. Um, so when you're when you say you're in the world and not of the world, uh, being worldly, being secular is a bad thing. Secular itself is a bad word, and um, because it doesn't just mean not religious. Um, if it wasn't religious, it was almost equated to anti-religious, and so I, you, you tried to move everything you could into doing it in a Christian way. And, and making it non-secular. And so the secular world out there is the one that, you know, the, the devil is, is they didn't say the devil. They said the adversary at my church, but the adversary is um, trying to tempt you with. And so all of the, the pleasures and joys and the hedonism and the, the, the lust and all of that other stuff, um, was of the world. And so we would say that we're not 
we are not of the world. We are in it. We're there because there's a great commission. We need to proselytize. We need to evangelize. We need to bring people into, you know, the 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 this the the church. Um, but we would not be kind of swayed into those other secular things. It's always interesting to me how ingrained that is in our culture too. I mean, I, I know people that aren't even religious who will use the word Christian, for example, to mean good. That's such a Christian thing to do. And they're not religious themselves, but they just use that word in that way. It's so ingrained in how we we talk. It even spills over into non-religious people sometimes even. Absolutely. Absolutely. Heck, I remember talking to someone who was not overtly religious, uh, you know, in, in the way that they were raised, saying, but saying to me when I when I told them I was an atheist, they went, but you're going to send your kids to church at least so that they can learn to get their morals right. I mean, mm -hmm. at least for that. And it's like, what have we internalized? You know, how, how did we get to this place where the church has this stranglehold on being a good person. Yeah, I've absolutely seen that too. Mm -hmm. It's wild. Was this move away from religiosity at this point part of kind of being a, a moody teenager or was it something else at that point? Um, it was a number of factors. Um, one of them was my attitude towards that family changed. The family dynamic changed. Um, and I... I don't want to get into too heavy of a detail, but I sure. have talked to my birth mother and she has expressly given me permission to talk about this kind of thing. Um, so my, my stepfather was a very abusive man. Um, he was also a drug addict and um, he tested positive um, and for, for a very heavy drug and got fired from his job. And I decided that that was my moment to, to say, you know what, I'm not going to put myself in that situation anymore. And so, um, I told them, you know, if you want to spend time with me, I'm going to stay with my grandma and grandpa during visitation now. And, um, my exposure to going to church kind of fell off a cliff um, th th there was a, there was a lot of stuff going on in my life that wasn't necessarily just religious. It was a lot of personal stuff, but it did give me that opportunity to kind of step back and reevaluate where that was coming from, where a lot of the, the views of, you know, well, I, it, it sounds really bad, but I, I'm sure you've seen, I'm sure in other interviews you've, you've talked about the, the language of abuse that is just baked into, uh, to religion, you know, and, and the, the Christianity that I grew up with absolutely had that, you know, and, and it's in the Bible. I mean, what God many times says, especially in the old Testament, you know, I don't want to hurt you. So don't make me hurt you, uh -huh. you know, and, that's not good. That's not good for a God. That's not good for a family. That's not good for a relationship. And so I had the opportunity to kind of view that personally. And then after that, I kind of moved into viewing it religiously. I, and um, I, I didn't think that the religion was wrong. I didn't think there was no God. I was still convinced that God was out there. Um, I'm just broken somehow. Something, so, so, something in my brain is just preventing me from, from this faith thing because faith used to just be you know, understanding and, and, and knowing it to be true. But all of a sudden I was having trouble just, just believing and, and I, I would ask, you know, well, why? But why? And again, I wasn't trying to be, you know, I wasn't trying to deconvert anyone. I still considered myself a Christian. But uh -huh. those why questions pushed a lot of people away and kind of opened me up to looking elsewhere. And so kind of, that's kind of what I did. So you're having these doubts and still considered yourself a religious person and a Christian. And yet instead of kind of getting answers, you just got pushed away and in turn then blamed yourself for having these questions in the first place. 
Absolutely. I think it was either the end of my junior year or beginning of my senior year in high school. Um, I had kind of started viewing the church that I went to with resentment. And so I started looking at outside churches and I kind of did a tour. I mean, I'd gone to a whole bunch of different, um, you know, uh, different versions of Christianity with friends growing up. Uh, you know, my, my dad didn't mind. Um, but I had other opportunities. I had met someone who was a Taoist hmm. and she was this super, super cool old lady. I mean, she spent 10 years, as she told me she spent, she spent 10 years on an Island in the Pacific on a nudist colony just <laughs> like doing her thing, just this old hippie. And, um, she gave me her copy of the Tao to read. And so I read the Tao and I would go to her and, you know, this old dog-eared book and I'd, you know, well, what about this? Well, what about that? Well, what about this? And the interesting thing is, is there are very, very secular views that you can take towards most of the Tao. You know, it's how you treat each other and, and, and how you should kind of idealize the person that you want to be. And I really liked that. Hmm. But I thought, I, I, I still don't, I still don't have a, like a thumb on God. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so where are we going next? Okay. Uh, well, I looked at the Tao. How about all of these other religions that, which are now, again, this is another cringe moment. Uh, being someone, being a Western person who's moving out of Christianity, um, the Eastern religions are fetishized so much. There's so many people who, and, and you still see it with a lot of pseudo spiritual people who will kind of pretend like there's this magic that they're getting in touch with when they connect with religions of other cultures, especially ones from far away. And I was not immune to that. I dove right into wanting to learn about other Eastern religions. Um, and, and I, I did. And then I had a friend who actually started, um, th th there was a, there was a sweat lodge and, uh, there, there was a native, native population up. Who I think this was, this was up towards Ojai, California, and mm -hmm. um, there was a natural hot spring, and I I remember going up there, and and that kind of moved me into this well, th this idea that maybe there's a collective unconscious, maybe God is just in all of us, man, you know, <laughs> and mm -hmm. we just need to tap into this deeper reality, and so I tried. A pretty fair amount of drugs. Um, and it was awesome. Um, mm -hmm. I, <laughs> like, I, I wish, I wish that, um, that, that the, the, the don't do drugs campaigns were a little more honest, at least, you know, you don't do drugs because they're bad. You do them because they're so good. You stop taking care of yourself or they, and they damage your body. You know, you don't care about the consequences of it. But, um, when it came to taking, um, kind of mind altering drugs. I, I have some really great memories, you know, mm. I, I would, yeah, I, I never did it as a party thing. I would do it with a lot of meditation and with a sitter. Um, and I had experience, I, I thought that I kind of left my body and I went flying over the beach in Santa Monica and the pier. Another time I just laid back and realized that the whole world is just alive. And I communed with my ceiling fan and it was, it was like, it was a deep experience for me. Even, even now as an atheist, I'm, I'm, I'm looking back and I'm thinking, you know, that time that I had, it, it really was very meaningful, meaningful for me at the time. Um, but again, you know, all things come to an end. I, I wasn't any closer to it. Obviously I wasn't any closer to cracking through to the other side. Um, and so I kind of, 
kind of started losing a bit of interest. And um, one of my best friends uh, went to UCLA and he was a, he was in a fraternity, Alpha Epsilon Pi, which is the Jewish fraternity on campus. And they have their own rabbi there. And um, I, that gave me an opportunity to explore Judaism. And that was actually my last stop was Judaism going all the way hmm. back around. Um, it, it was explained to me later that a rabbi is, is supposed to deny you before letting you, like if you say, I want to convert, the, 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 it's not like another other forms of Christianity where they're like, yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's, let's give your life over to Christ right now. There's not this great commission. And so they say no. And what you're supposed to do is, is show them that you mean it earnestly and, and you continue to say, no, this is what I want. And then they say, they say, okay. And so I reached out to a rabbi and he's like, no, nah. And so instead of messaging him and, and telling him, you know, this was something that I wanted, I just started calling other rabbis. <laughs> and you can probably see where this is going. Each of them in turn went, nah, you know. <laughs> And so I wound up getting denied a bunch of times and I was like, it's not supposed to be this hard. Um, and so I finally just a lot of frustration, um, was arguing with, with a rabbi and he was a really sweet dude. Um, and he said, then just don't believe. And I was like, wait, what? That that's an option. Really? I, I didn't. What? <laughs> um, and and that's when I kind of put the bag down, and I and I walked away. And um, I after that, I kind of became an apatheist. Mm-hmm. I, I I just didn't care. I instead um, went on to being a new kind of cringe. Um, I became <laughs> this. Oh oh, dude! I I was just so. I, I, on, ugh. I, so I'm not saying there's anything wrong with listening to nothing but NPR, this American life. Wait, wait, don't tell me radio lab Freakonomics. Um, I'm not saying that it's bad to be really, really into and understanding socio, sociopolitical things going on around the world. But when you were as insufferable as I was about it, um, there's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> And I was, I was insufferable. Um, but I, I dove into those things. And I remember one day I I was looking for podcasts because um, I had started working a job that was in a warehouse um, at a school district that I'd worked at for a long time. But anyway, um, I was by myself. And so I needed to kill the time. And there's only so much this American life. And Mm -hmm. so I'm kind of scrolling through new podcasts and one comes up, it was just starting and it was called cognitive dissonance. Um, have you heard of Cogdis? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I mean, when I first saw it, I I thought, you know, well, this is, this is, this looks smug and pretentious. I'll probably like this (laughs) (laughs) cognitive dissonance. It was car talk for atheists and Tom and Cecil bumble fucked me into atheism. (laughs) <laughs> um, it was, and I got to tell them that, which was wonderful, um, you know, eventually, but they had just moved out of doing everyone's a critic and it just started Cogdis and I just became enamored. And, and then, um, they started saying, uh, that th- there was a point in time when they were doing audiobooks. They were, they were selling audiobooks. They said, you know, uh, go to Audible and um, type in this code word and, you know, w- whatever. And they said, we recommend The God Delusion. And so I got The God Delusion as an audiobook. Hmm. And that changed things. All of these questions that I had that, that didn't feel right, I, I saw that not only were they asked but they were answered in and not in a you just have to close your eyes and pretend way it actually was answered and 
I just, I couldn't get enough. I became a sponge. Um, from there, I found shows like The Atheist Experience, like Dogma Debate with David Smalley. Mm-hmm. And I, and, and, and that's where I discovered Aaron Raw. And it was amazing. And I just became hooked. And I just for years would listen to atheist audiobooks and podcasts and read atheist audiobooks and articles. And that was that was a huge part of me. Um, I actually did that for almost seven years. I think maybe just over seven years before I moved to the ACA at the end of 2016. Now, during this period, were you also involved in kind of atheist community in person as well? Or was it strictly kind of an online podcast kind of thing for you? It was strictly online. Now, I had made friends who weren't religious, but they were not, they weren't doing what we're doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, when I tried to show them, hey, you know, there's damage going on. We, we should do something about it. It was, oh God, Eric's doing the thing again he won't shut up it was just so you became insufferable about this stuff like you were the you know the I, previous stuff i have resigned myself to recognizing myself as just an un- insufferable person <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I, I i think that uh that is probably just the case i i get very very passionate about everything i do when i get into something i don't take half measures we and need more people got, like that in the world, not not fewer. Uh, you know, maybe. I, I don't know. Man. <laughs> I don't know. I couldn't imagine a world with more of me in it. That that, that I don't know if that's a good idea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I I dove into this, um, you know, and I just kind of lived I lived an entire life you know um I was in a relationship I I got married I, I was um with someone for nine and a half years before uh ending that and and moving to Austin um I don't know I think I think I, I recognized that I need a new start I I if I didn't go I wasn't gonna get I wasn't going to get to explore this, and and this is too big of a part for me. And I, I've, I've got to do this. And I had family that was moving to a city just outside of Austin, and so I said, "Cool, can I come with?" And they said, "Sure." And so I hopped into a U-Haul and I drove twenty-seven hours because it was one of the super long U-Hauls, and I was towing a vehicle behind that. Um, so yeah, it was, it was 27 hours of driving. Um, and when I wound up getting to uh, get, well, getting to the town outside of Austin, um, it was the middle of nowhere, man. I lived two miles down a dirt road from my own mailbox. No internet. Yeah. (laughs) No internet, no nothing. I was just happy that I was just over an hour's drive from the ACA. And so I moved in December of 2016. And with my stuff still in boxes, that first Sunday, I drove up and I found the ACA and I sat in on my first show uh, episode of The Atheist Experience live. So you moved to Austin specifically because the ACA was there and you had a connection to the show? Well, so there were a couple of things, um, but I could have done them anywhere. I needed to go back to college. I had put my ex through college and it was time for me to. Um, I had family that was going out, out there and I knew it wasn't far from Austin. And I don't know. I, you lose a lot of friends when a divorce happens, you know, I, I, I needed a change of scenery. And so I just, it just seemed like the right decision. And so I went and I mean, I think if I had to pin down why it was Austin, it, yeah, it was entirely because the ACA. What was that first moment? Like when you went to see the atheist experience for the first time, what was that experience like for you? Having had all this history kind of building up to this moment, what was that like? This was my first time in an atheist community. 
And when I got there, walking into the building, um, you know, it was before the show started and I just cried. Um, I, I ugly cried. Like I sobbed and poor Mark, <laughs> the our producer was there and he just kind of patted me on the back because I'm just some rando who walked in and started bawling. Um, you know? <laughs> wow. And it, it was, I, I had never walked into a place before and been like, I'm home the way that I felt. And that's the way I felt when I, when I first went to the ACA, I'm home. This is where I need to be. So yeah, it was, it was a really big deal for me. What about it specifically do you think gave you that sense of connection? Nobody was saying, Oh God, Eric, you're talking about that thing again. You're just going on with the atheist stuff. Everybody there was there for the same reason. They all had that same passion. And above that, everybody had their own story. I mean, I lurked in the corners and just absorbed all of this content, but I never dipped my toes into, you know, interacting with other people that way. And so this was just diving, you know, headfirst into the deep end of the pool. And there was, there were so many people who were just excited to share their stories and connect and, and want, wanting this. And so I, I just, in fact, that night, um, Russell Glasser was the one who hosted that, that episode. Mm-hmm. And so afterward, we all went to Star of India and we're sitting there and, I'm just super, super nervously kind of go up to Russell. And at this point, Russell is just the embodiment of everything that I made all of this change in my life for. And I've just got like, I'm ready to cry, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I say, Russell, and he goes, Oh yeah. I, I said, um, I, I know you don't know me, but I, I just want you to know that, when I, when I listen to the atheist experience more than anything, I don't feel alone. Thank you. And he just, I mean, what do you tell somebody? He was like, uh, okay. You know, <laughs> he was nice about it, but I mean, what do you, what do you say? What do you say to somebody like that? And I just, it didn't matter. He could have just, there was nothing he needed to say. It, it was for me to say. And I think since then, now I'm looking back now that I have that experience to look back on. I know that there are people who have kind of messaged me with things like that. And I, you, you kind of recognize that it's, it's for them. Yeah. It, it is a hard thing to know what to say when someone says something like that to you. Yeah. It's, it's humbling and it's incredibly affirming. But that day I told Mark, um, that I wanted to be a volunteer for the atheist experience and for the ACA. And he said, no, um, he said, no, way too- he said, no. Wow. I, I got, like a, the I, got a hard- <laughs> <laughs> I got a hard no, but I got a, I, but he gave me a reason. Uh, he said, there are way too many people who come in, you know, bright eyed and bushy tailed and say they want to help. And then we invest all of this time and, and, and train them. And then after about three weeks, they kind of fizzle out, disappear and never come back. So how about this? Become a regular, come back, keep coming to shows. And, and, uh, you know, I want to get to know you. I want to know your name. I want to go, Hey, there's, there's Eric. And so that's exactly what I did is I came to the ACA every single Sunday. And um, I made sure that they remembered my name. And that at that point, they, they were like, okay, um, would you like to learn how to call screen for the atheist experience? Yes. And so <laughs> I, beca- I became a call screener for, for AXP. Um, and that was just the coolest thing Ever. 
So for those that I, don't know, what what does a call screener do for the show? Sure. Oh, I, I guess also uh, for those who don't know, the ACA, the Atheist Community of Austin, is a nonprofit out obviously out of Austin, Texas. It's the home of a lot of YouTube and YouTube shows and podcasts that are atheist content. It's become a hub that is known around the world. It's it's pretty amazing. I I, I haven't seen any other organizations like it that that do that. Mm-hmm. Um, the Atheist Experience is the flagship. It's a call-in show that's been going on since 1997 as a public access show um, that wound up finding its way to YouTube uh, when YouTube became a thing eventually. Um, but what is a call screener? Because it's a call-in show, people would call in and they wouldn't get to the hosts right away. They'd have to go through me. And so the questions I would ask are, are, are you theist or atheist? What would you like to talk about? You know, where are you calling from? What's your name? And during that process, um, try and determine if they have a clear thing that they want to ask. A lot of people call in who just want to yap at you. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not. It's it's great when somebody calls and I, actually I'll, I'll describe that second. Sure. There are some people who just want to call and say, I want to tell my worldview to everybody. I don't want to listen. I just want everyone to hear my thoughts on things. Uh, it was our job to weed those people out. Um, mm-hmm. There was another version, though, of people who would call in who didn't really knew, know why they wanted to call in. And I would call it um, popping the cork. Uh, there are people who would go who were also watching or listening who were all ages who when they called in they might have had another question but they just realized that it's the first time in their life that they're actually talking to another atheist that understands and they want to share their life story they want you to know everything they want you to know them and so I would just kind of mark that line as don't take this one I've got it and once AXP was settled, I'd sit and just listen and talk to them and um, kind of give them the chance to decompress and share about themselves because it was important for them. So it's almost like you were doing another show that wasn't even airing, but you were just taking these calls from people. Yeah. Well, I mean, they just wanted to connect and it wasn't something that they needed to share with the world. They just wanted to connect and so i did that when i could um there was an there were two other call screeners uh one uh went away the other his name was jamie boone and jamie and i became best friends we were thick as thieves um eventually over time i um i started to kind of so we had to take turns call screening, which means that there are weekends that I was there and I didn't have anything to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't not going to come, but I had to do something. And w- one of the things was people would come in and just, well, you were, you've been there, Chris. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure you recognize, you know, that, you know, people just kind of file in, they sit down and oh, I guess this is the right place. And then the show comes on and then the show ends and everybody leaves and goes to star of India. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of became the greeter. Mm-hmm. I, um, I kind of elected myself to this. I was out there and hi, welcome to the atheist community of Austin. Yes, this is the right place. I know it's way smaller of a building than you thought it would be. Um, oh. Yeah, I'm happy to answer questions. Sure. You know, and and I wound up doing that and then I would do a pre-show for the atheist experience. Um, and the pre-show would basically, it would just be the announcements, you know, Um the atheist community of Austin is a 501c3 nonprofit. Uh, your donations go to this. They're tax deductible. Uh, there is no God in the sky, but we will we will collectively shame you if your cell phone goes off during the show. Please silence your cell phones or turn them off. You know, <laughs> and just things like that. You know, this is the audience, Mike. Um, and it, there were just it just became a thing. And eventually, one day we were at Star of India. The 
the table was particularly full. Um, there wasn't a place for the crew. And so we kind of took a side table and Mark and Vern uh, were sitting there with Jamie and myself. And they said, you know, if you guys ever wanted to start a show, we we've got the facilities and we've got, and, and I was just, yes, absolutely. And Jamie is Jamie too. Yes. And that, that was kind of the start of talk then. Was it, was part of this because you kind of saw yourself in so many of these people that were coming to the show to get something out of it. I mean, you saw the, the joy that you got out of what the show meant to you and you saw that and all these other people and wanted to help them. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. So Mark was there to kind of pat me on the back and, and tell me it's going to be okay when I cried. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people who I did that for too. There are a lot of people who just came in and I would just tell them, welcome home, you know, <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's, that's, that's all it takes is just to go, Hey, you know what? You belong here too. And yeah. Um, I absolutely saw that. So whenever, I mean, now it's COVID where you can't go to the building, but when we could, I always tried to make time for anybody who came in to watch the shows because you never know. And there are Mm -hmm. always different faces. There's always a new audience every weekend. It was wild. It could be a rando day in the middle of the year that, you know, there's nothing special going on. And still it's a full audience packed of people who came in from all over the world to see that weekend. It's just, it's insane. What's the show that you started then with Jamie? Talk Heathen, the younger sister show of the atheist experience. Uh, Originally it was going to be a podcast um, that had nothing to do with calls, but our call screener Vern had said, you know, we've got this equipment and it is, it's really expensive equipment. There's, there's a reason why, um, there aren't other call-in shows because the barrier to entry is really high. And now it's actually going down. Now it's more available, but at the time that just wasn't the case. And so he said, if you're not going to utilize that, you're an idiot. And mm-hmm. so we went, okay, but if we start a call-in show, we'll just be copying the atheist experience. I, I, why would we do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, we, we wound up going, okay, well, what would be the difference? The difference would be that we would take the time and, you know, the, the, there are times when somebody, you know, call, calls into AXP and Matt answers and they go, hey, I want to talk about the Kalam cosmological argument. And Matt says, I disagree with premise two. And they move on. Uh, but if you haven't been doing this for 15, 20 years, what the hell is the Kalam cosmological argument? Okay. So that's where Taki then would find its niche. It would be that, that, that entry into things where we would take our time and, and work out the arguments and have more ongoing conversations that were a little more slow paced, a little more patient and, um, it's kind of that's where we found our niche. And how has doing the show changed you? How is it has it evolved the way you think about things? Have you have do you think about things differently than you did when you first started doing the show just based on speaking to more people? Absolutely. Um it has drastically changed everything. Um, <laughs> I was originally going to college to become a school psychologist. And I was working in a special ed classroom. And now I am a full-time activist. I, I Not only am I the, the main host of Talk Heathen, but I also have a podcast called The Atheist Podcast. I have, you have The Atheist book, so I'm sure you'd appreciate uh, good SEO is good SEO, man. Absolutely. Um, I approve. <laughs> Right? Uh, nobody had it, by the way, which is amazing. Really? Uh, wow. Yeah. The, the atheistpodcast.com and atheistpodcast.com both link to my uh, my site. But that that's kind of gone on hiatus. I've also started a, a YouTube channel, a private YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Eric D. Murphy, uh, where I do a – well, I, I do a number of things. The main thing that I've been doing actually is a show called Murphy's Law where – 
we go back over the calls. I mean, a lot of us hosts, we want to be better hosts. And so we want to go back over and go, holy crap, I really screwed up here. Or, oh man, you know, I missed the point when this happened. Or, or I want to get in, get in a little more depth because maybe that call-in format's not the format to talk about this, but we were already studying our shows every week after we hosted. And so... I've kind of put that to video. And so that's, that's Murphy's law on my channel. I also mm-hmm. have long form conversations with Christian apologists. Um, that's not vitriolic. It's actually really nice. Hmm. And, and I don't let them get away with like, it's, it's, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with most of them. <laughs> 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 they can't all be gems. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, as I go and do, uh, public speaking and debates. I'm popping those up on the channel as well. So between that, um, going out and doing, you know, speaking engagements, um, it, it's just, this has become it, man. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's my life now. And I, one thing I really love about hearing your story and, and hearing it directly from you too, is that it, it comes from a place of authenticity. It comes from a place of here's someone who, who came into the ACA and wept because of how important and meaningful it was to, to him, right? Like it's not yeah. it's not coming from a place of kind of opportunism or or just trying to make a name for yourself. I mean, you're doing this. This is what I love about you. You're doing this because it's important. You're doing it because you're passionate about it. You're doing it because you have a lifetime history of events that lead you to what you're doing now. That's what I love about this. Thank you, brother. I really appreciate that. That's really kind of you. Yeah. Um, I, there is, I, (laughs) so I, I I was talking to my partner the other day and we were kind of saying, Hey, you know, if you could have one wish, if you, if you had a genie in front of you and they would grant one wish, they could send you anywhere. Where would you go? And I spent way too long thinking about it. And by the time I had an answer, I realized the only place a genie could send me is five years into the future because I want to see where I'm going to be in five years because this is where I want to be. These are the people I want to be around. This is the movement and the community that I want to be building and I want to help with and I want to shore up in any way that I can and, and help elevate other voices and help in just this is it man <laughs> like yeah you, you you hit the nail on the head i i'm i'm here and i i don't want to i don't plan on leaving anytime soon it's a very um covid game you were playing with your partner um i think we're all playing a bit of that <laughs> like if we could go anywhere right now where would we where would we go <laughs> yeah uh they kind of rolled their eyes but uh, at me because i didn't say France or, you know, uh, the, any other parts of the world. I, I don't know. I think, I think we've just got a lot to do here. There's too much, There's too much still, maybe someday, but right now, if I had one wish, it'd be right here doing this. Now that you have the ability to kind of look back and use all of that history that you have, what is your advice for people who might be struggling with these ideas of how do I fit in in the world? How do I find what I want to do in my life? What's your advice to those people? So I got to couch it in, I'm an absurdist. Um, I think that we've been sold a false bill of goods, this idea that your meaning and your purpose needs to come from elsewhere, that it needs to come from some, some, some place on high or that it needs to come from family or that it needs to come from your community, or you need to tick certain boxes and get married at this age and make this much money by what I've learned, what I've, what I hold on to is there is no baked in meaning in anything. And because of that, we get to decide what has meaning. We get to give ourselves purpose. And that is incredible. And I know it sounds super cheesy, but but for those of you who are listening, if you haven't tried it, at least just please, 
please try it. Because when you set that goal and that purpose and you work towards it, you're doing it for you. You're doing it because that's what you want to do. And it is freeing in a way that I never imagined was possible. You have the chance right now to give yourself that purpose. Don't wait for it to come to you, but seize it. And, and it doesn't matter what it is. That's, that's the other thing is people put so many value judgments on absolutely arbitrary things. If you really like playing Pokemon go be the best freaking Pokemon go player you can be, <laughs> I, I, you know, but, but do it with passion, dive into it and don't, don't get so hung up on what you think society needs from you. You know, you don't need to, you know, have a degree by this age and make so much money by this age and retire at this age with, you know, 2.3 children and a, and a house in the suburbs. Um, if you want to cool, but make sure that it's because that's what you want. And if you're finding that, there's this crisis, you know, because I, I've definitely felt that existential crisis, that pain, you know, what do you do with it? You put it in its place. Remember, you're just not that special. I'm not either. We're not. And that's wonderful because we're not so unique that we're uniquely unlovable. We are not uniquely unqualified to make it through this life. We're not so special that our problems just cannot be, be, be worked around or fixed or solved. And we, it's not, you can ask for help, but the, the, I, I don't know. There's just so much to it. And everybody is so damn set on thinking that they're just so unique when what's amazing is we're not. And I think that's what gives me the strength to carry on because I don't think I could make it if I was. Eric, thank you so much for joining me today. Chris, this was an honor. Um, I'm so glad that I finally got to meet you, man. And um, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please visit patreon.com slash The Atheist Book. For more information about the book and film versions of A Better Life, 